Are you ready for a shaking? Are you ready for the fire of God? Because there is a shaking coming. God is shaking his people, he's shaking the heavens. And God is moving in a fresh way. And there's a requirement for us to be ready. It doesn't just happen. There is a requirement for us to be ready. And today I want to uh, look at something that we don't very often uh, talk about. Go with me, if you would, into Romans chapter 7. And Romans is Paul's, uh, certainly Paul's longest letter, his most systematic letter in terms of dealing with uh, faith by um, um, faith by repentance, justification by faith, the fact that we can't do anything of ourselves to earn our salvation. And then Paul concludes uh, in the summary of his letter, he says he concludes that the gospel is the power for, for salvation. That having heard the good news of Christ Jesus, it has the power to bring us to salvation. Amen? You know, the fact that we are here is the evidence of that. We heard the gospel, and having heard it, we were convinced and we came to salvation. And so I want to read uh, just the first 20 verses of uh, the seventh chapter in Romans. And uh, yeah, you'll see the title... This morning is simply called Despicable Me, because it talks about the fact that every single one of us, whether we know it or not, fundamentally, intrinsically, are despicable. In other words, not very nice, not very likable. Um, In the natural, there is nothing of ourselves that that God would desire. We are fundamentally not very nice people. But God has made a plan that even knowing who we are, what we are, God has made it possible for us to be reconciled with him and to have relationship with him. And so let's read in Romans chapter 7, uh, the first 20 verses. And Paul says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies... She's free from the law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit 
and not in the old way of the written code or of the law. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet it has not been, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known that it was what it was to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and, though, and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. For I know that nothing good comes, dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And we can be forgiven when we read that pa passage of Scripture Believe we can be forgiven believing that maybe Paul has a split personality, a dual personality. I, I find myself doing what I don't want to do and, and not doing the things that I ought to do. Almost a Jekyll and Hyde personality. Um, a, a constant struggle, a constant wrestling between spirit and flesh. Paul's description of that tension that lies in him is a perfect description of the struggle that every single one of us faces almost daily. I don't know about you, and I'm sure I'm not alone, but in spite of the sort of facade of a healthy sort of uh, self-esteem and a sense of personal security, there is a turmoil, there is a tension, there is a battle going on. On the outside, we present that we've got it all together, but on the inside, there is a struggle because we know what we truly are. We get up in the mornings and we look in the mirror. And I don't know what you see when you look in the mirror. Maybe you see, you know, a handsome, a beautiful person. Maybe you see someone who's slightly too, too much overweight. 
I don't know what you see. Maybe you see someone who can face the day and the challenges. Maybe you see someone who is fearful of all that is coming. But whatever you see in the mirror, I guarantee most of us have at some time looked in the mirror and we haven't liked what we see. Perhaps some of you, that happens almost on a daily basis. There is a self-loathing. You look in the mirror and what you see, you don't like. For whatever reason, you look at yourself and you think about despicable me. I know that I've done that on occasion, you know, in the morning. I don't know about you. I don't know what your bathroom looks like. You know, I don't have any spy cameras in there and I haven't been in most of your bathrooms. But, you know, in our bathroom, we have a uh, a mirror, and uh, it's right by, the, right by the sink, and so, you know, I can't help but look at myself in the mirror every morning, and I have to ask myself, what are you seeing? What is it you are looking at? You see, even the Old Testament prophet, Jeremiah, he exposed the real us when he made that uh, lengthy criticism about the state of the human heart. Remember Jeremiah 17, 9 said, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You see, it doesn't matter what you think about yourself, whether you think you're a good person, you're a righteous person. The reality is that our hearts, the Bible says, are sick. We are in need of something to heal us. You see, when we look at the heart, we see the darkness, we see the deceitfulness, we see the despicable me element of our nature. And when we look, when we truly look at the heart, it's not a flattering picture. It's not an encouraging picture to know what's in the heart. But the good thing is that God who created us, God who spoke, and things that were not came into being. God knows us because he formed us in our mother's womb. He knows what goes on in our heart. Maybe, you know, we, we mistreat others and we, we laugh it off. We're sarcastic to other people and we just pass it off. Well, that's just, that's just me. We, at times, maybe even inflict a, a physical or sometimes emotional pain with others. We see pain and disease on the TV and we just turn over, we just change channel and we remain indifferent to the pain and the suffering that is going on and we simply go back to our comfortable environments. We worship with the same hands that we sin with. We sing with the same lips that we spread rumours with and we speak poorly about others. You see, we know what we are, and we try to ignore it, and we talk about blessing and authority of the kingdom, but the truth is that we have simply fooled ourselves. We're trying to convince ourselves that we are better than actually we ought or we are. We continually refuse to allow Holy Spirit to work in us, to change us and to transform those elements, those dark elements in our lives that we are so aware of. Matthew 6.23 says this. He says, 
If the eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? It's interesting what Matthew says. Um, you, you know, sometimes we can skirt over it. You know that, that darkness is not, darkness of itself doesn't exist alone. But darkness is simply the absence of light. And yet Matthew here says, if then, listen, the light in you is darkness. How great is that darkness? In other words, what Matthew is saying, he's saying that actually there is no light. There is no light uh, in us if we choose to ignore God, if we choose to do our own thing, if we choose to fulfill our own natural tendencies and desires, Matthew says, actually, there is no light in us. And so we have a problem. Let me ask you, friends, if we continue to choose to live our lives apart from God, doing our own thing, making our own selfish choices, do you think for one moment that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, is going to show up in a place like that. And when I say a place like that, remember, you know, God no longer dwells in bricks and mortar, but he says that he's made his tabernacle, his habitation in the hearts of men. We are now those living temples, and so he, by his spirit, lives in us. But here's the picture. You know, in the tabernacle, there was the Holy of Holies where the presence of God resided between the two cherubim over the mercy seat. And the priest only went in there once a year to commune with God on behalf of the people. We who are the living temples who have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, we can enter in any time we want to into the Holy of Holies and commune with our God. But let me ask you a question. How many times do you meet with him? We have the opportunity. He has made the way. He has made it possible. But I wonder how many of us remain in that outer court and we fail to commune with the one who has made his habitation in us. He's there. His presence is there. But we leave him aside. And we seldom speak or commune with him. You see, it's great that you are saved. It's great that we are saved, that we've come to that place where we've received Christ, Christ Jesus. But there is more. We don't just leave God and his presence in the Holy of Holies, satisfied with the fact that he is there. But there is a requirement for us to enter in. And to meet with him, to hear his voice, to rest and abide in his presence. We have a problem. But thankfully, Paul gives us a glimpse to the solution for our mess. He, get, he comes to grips with his own condition. In Romans 7.24, Paul says this. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death. He's asking the question, um, who can save me? And then he 
realizes his own inability to deal with the darkness of his heart. And listen, friends, listen, church. You know, none of us have the ability to deal with the, the darkness that resides in us. We need help. We need a rescuer. And Paul reveals a solution for despicable me. He says in verse 25 of that seventh chapter, Thanks be to God through Christ, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. You see, Paul recognized, understood his predicament and recognized and concluded that the only way he can be saved and deal with that problem is by the Lord Jesus Christ. Only him. Thanks be through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And let me tell you, every single one of us needs the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single one of us needs a salvation that only he can and does provide. You see, God is not scared of the darkness of our hearts. He certainly isn't surprised by it because the prophets of old spoke about what is in the heart. God is not surprised by it. But he certainly is determined not to leave us in that condition. Through his son, Christ Jesus, he has made a way that actually the darkness that resides in us can be dealt with. He offers us something for dealing with this internal struggle about, um, I find I don't do the things that I want to do or I ought to do, but instead I find myself doing the things that I know I shouldn't be doing, and I struggle with that. And Paul offers the solution. He says it's this. The struggle between good and evil, between right and wrong. He says the solution is this. We simply come to a place of repentance. A place of repentance. God is shaking. God is, is moving things and he's calling for people again to come back to that place of repentance. If you're following um, the, 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 this recent move of, of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit and, and of God uh, over in Stateside in Asbury University, you'll see that that is marked, that is marked with repentance at the heart of it. God is calling his people back again to a place of repentance. Repentance, friends, is the only thing that deals with despicable me. Acknowledging our need of God. Acknowledging that we can't do it by ourselves. But there are two issues with the idea and the practice of repentance. Remember, you know, there are things that we have to do. We, we can't just let God do it all. But God demands a response from us if we are going to deal with the issue of the darkness of the human heart. The first thing is that if we're going to repent, we first have to recognize our need. We first have to recognize that we have, that we have uh, gone our own way. We first need to recognize our responsibility for the sin that we carry in our lives. It's no one else's fault but our own. Too many of us don't repent because we fail 
to accept the responsibility for what is happening in our lives. Oh, it's someone else's fault. Oh, it's because of my background. It's because of my upbringing. It's because of what that person said to me. It's because of what so-and-so did to me. That's why I'm behaving this way. That's why I'm acting this way. We fail to accept it's the responsibility of sin that it's our problem. Whether it's a life-controlling addiction, whether it's alcohol or, or chemical substance abuse, overeating, a reliance on coffee, whatever. We say it's someone else's or something else's fault. But we fail to recognize that the responsibility lies with us. Oh, the devil made me do it. The devil didn't make you do anything. You chose to do it. All the devil can do is present before you an opportunity to do the wrong thing, to make the wrong choices. But ultimately, we, because of the darkness in our hearts, make those choices. And repentance requires, requires that we accept responsibility for our messed up lives. Paul and Jeremiah came to the conclusion that our hearts are, are, are just messed up. We're messy people. Life is messy. I don't know what is going on in our lives at the moment and, and where you are and, and, and so on, but maybe you're engaged in, in some sort of willful or, or knowing sin. And God wants you to acknowledge it this morning. Take responsibility. It's no one else's fault but our own. We're responsible for the sin in our life. We're responsible for the poor lifestyle choices that we make. No one else, nothing else but us. And we need to take responsibility. Take a moment and think about your life. Think about our lives. Think about how we live. Think about the things that we do, the thoughts that we have, the actions that we express. Think about those things that we know, we are consciously aware of, that are contrary to a godly lifestyle. The responsibility is ours. This inability, this somewhat inability to take the responsibility is something that we have inherited from our first father, from Adam. When we look back in Genesis, what do we see? We see Adam passing the blame. Well, it, was, it wasn't me, it was the woman. In fact, Adam wasn't blaming Eve. When you look at it, Adam was actually blaming God. Because what he actually said is, it wasn't me, it was the woman that you gave me. In other words, if you hadn't given me this woman... I would have been fine. I wouldn't have done what I've done. Is, does, it, does that sound familiar? If you hadn't done this, if this hadn't happened, I, I wouldn't have done that. 
it's someone else's responsibility. But repentance requires, friends, that we first acknowledge the responsibility lies with us. The second issue of, of repentance is that having accepted Christ as our Savior, we acknowledge that repentance is not just for those out there, but actually repentance is still for us. You see, the problem is, is sometimes we come to faith and then we think we're done, we're dusted, we're good. I don't need to do anything else. And then we think when we talk about repentance that repentance is for the unbeliever. We think repentance is for those who are outside the family of God. But let me tell you, if you read Revelation 2 and 3, you will see that repentance is, um, you know, or, or the writer, the spirit of God, when he, when he um, speaks in Revelation, when he, particularly in Revelation 2 and 3, to the seven church, churches, when he speaks about repentance, he's not speaking about repentance to unbelievers. He is speaking about repentance to the church, to those who have known and received Christ. And he still speaks to them about repentance. He speaks to the church at Ephesus, Pergamum, and Thyatira about the need to repent. He commands the believer to repent. And we have to remember that judgment, friends, the judgment of God starts and originates in the house of God. It doesn't start out there. It starts with the people of God. You see, as believers, as Christians, we should be the best repenters. We should be the first and foremost to acknowledge the sin in our lives and come before God and accept the responsibility. We of all people need to be repentant, people who are constantly repenting. And this morning I want to challenge us as a church, as the people of God, and in anyone in the hearing of this, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to challenge every believer this morning to come back to the place where we are practicing repentance before God. Where we're not just going on and living our lives and thinking everything is okay, but actually we take time to come aside and acknowledge before God those things that from time to time we allow to come into our lives. I'm challenging us to become a congregation of repenters. An assembly, a body of, believe, of, of believers who constantly repent. Let me give you just three or a few things just to help us in doing that. First of all, I think we need to repent daily. There's always stuff in our life going on. We, you know... Um, it, it's helpful if we maybe take some time in, in our daily lives to come aside, maybe at the end of the day, and maybe just replay the day. Just take time to look at the day. You know, walk through the day. The things you did, the things that we said. And highlight and pinpoint those places where perhaps that we need to repent because of something we said, something we did, something we failed to fulfill. You see, unconfessed sin will always steal our strength. And so we need to be a people who learn what it is to repent daily before 
God. The second thing is this, repent thoroughly. Seems a strange thing to say, repent thoroughly. Either we, we repent or, or we don't. What I mean by repent thoroughly is leave nothing uncovered. Don't put something aside and think, that's okay, I can leave that. But if we're truly going to repent before God, we need to be open and we need to repent thoroughly. We need to deal with those sins, not just of commission, the sins that we do, but we also need to deal with the sins of omission, the things that we fail to do, having heard the voice of God. We need to be thorough in our repenting. See, sin is not just something we do, but it's sometimes the things that we fail to put into action. Because God has called us to something. God has called us to a purpose. And sometimes it's hard fulfilling living the Jesus life. And we fail to do those things that God himself commissions us, calls us to do. So we need to repent thoroughly. The third thing is that our repentance needs to be authentic. It needs to be authentic. It's not just lip service. It's being prepared to deal and to do with everything that Holy Spirit reveals to us. Everything that he sets before us, we need to be prepared to deal with it. You see, God doesn't reveal things in our life for us just to set them aside. When Holy Spirit reveals something, the reason he reveals it is because God in his ultimate wisdom knows that we are ready and able to deal with it. God only shows us the things at the time that we are able to deal with. And so if God reveals something to us, don't put it aside and say, I can come back to that another time. If God has revealed it by his spirit, it's for the purpose of us dealing with that issue, understanding that Holy Spirit is the one who enables. Remember, remember where we started? The fact that we concluded, or Paul concludes, that of ourselves, we do not have the ability in, of ourselves through, through um, positive thinking or whatever else we want to do. We do not have the ability of ourselves to deal with the darkness of our hearts. And so we need a helper. We need Jesus. We need to find our way back to 2 Corinthians 7.10 where when we read it we discover it says this for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death in other words having had our sin our lives exposed and revealed we need to be prepared to lay it all before the Father, lay it all before the altar, and allow him to deal with it. We need to be a people who are courageous and bold enough to look at the ugliness and the disgrace of our sin 
um, until we come to a place where it so revolts us, disgusts us, that we're prepared to make the change. I've said this before, repentance is, repentance is not the turning around. Rep- the turning around is the effect of repentance. Repentance is coming to a place where having God having exposed the sin in our life, as we look at it, we become so um, bereft, so um, disgusted, re- disgusted and repulsed by it, that we come to a place where we feel we just cannot live with it anymore. And so that causes us to change direction. But our repentance is actually looking at the sin in our lives and becoming, coming to a place where we are repulsed, spiritually repulsed by what we see. Because when we are, we're not going to leave it alone. We're not going to stay as we are when we come to that place. But actually, we're going to do whatever it takes in order to deal with it. You see, personal and national revival, we talk about revival. I'm always reluctant to to use the word, but we talk about personal and national revival. But personal and national revival, friends, does not come without first repentance. Look at every revival, move of revival uh, in history. Look at what is happening uh, even now, if we dare to call that a revival. And revival, revival always starts in the heart. But revival, whether personal or national, corporate revival, it never comes, never starts without first a repentant people and a repentance of heart. So what do we see this morning when we look at one another, when we look at ourselves in that spiritual mirror? Adrian, would you just come back, uh, please, and just play and help, just help me here, please. Thank you. You see, the parable of the prodigal son shows the impact of personal repentance. It shows you what personal repentance look like, looks like. The Bible says that the young man himself went back to his father, and that's a picture of us going back to God. It says he went back to the father and he admitted his sin. He took responsibility for everything that had happened to him. He went back and said, Father, I've sinned against you. And maybe, maybe some of us need to come back to the place this morning where we say, Father, I have sinned against you. Maybe we need to come back to a place where we accept that personal responsibility and receive that instant forgiveness of the Father because he does. When we see that the account in the prodigal son, there was no waiting for the Father to embrace the Son. But as soon as the Son acknowledged his, his sin, the Father embraced him and welcomed him, placed his ring on his finger. And listen, when we truly repent, when we're authentic about about it, 
when we're determined to press in. There's no waiting. We can know the immediate forgiveness of our Father. Again, we're reminded in 2 Chronicles 7 and in the 2nd chapter of Joel that repentance doesn't just have the ability to change an individual, but it has the ability to transform a nation. It has the ability and the power to change external circumstances. Those who are called by his name, those who humble themselves. Those are the kinds of people that God is looking for. Our walk with Jesus is totally dependent on a repentant heart. Go, leave everything behind. Lay everything down and then come follow me. about you but sometimes when I look at myself in that spiritual mirror I wonder why God would choose someone like me I wonder why God would still express his love and his goodness his mercy extend grace to someone like me. And I hope that many of you are the same. But that's our God. He is faithful. He is merciful. He is just. He is righteous. He is good. He is benevolent. He is faithful. Even with our dark hearts, God through Christ Jesus has made the way for us to deal with all of that sin.